And so Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we'll read the whole chapter, verse 1 till 22. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What does a worker gain from his toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from the beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and do good while they live. That everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken away from it. God does it so that men will revere him. Whatever is has already been, and what will be has been before. And God will call the past to account. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. I also thought, as for men, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so the other dies. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down to the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better for man than to enjoy his work, because that is his lot. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? So far, the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it as we consider it. This evening. Now, lots of people are afraid of flying, of getting on an airplane. I'd still get kind of a little nervous of preparing to get on a plane. And it's funny, it's strange that statistically speaking, we all know this, right? That getting in a car is more dangerous than getting on a plane. And yet, we're more afraid of getting on the plane than getting in our car, which we do day in and day out. And why is that? Maybe you have your own theory, but my theory, in part, is that when we get behind, or when we get in our car, and we get behind the wheel, we grab a hold of that wheel, and it gives us a sense of control. That if a car comes swerving out of nowhere, that we can dodge it, we can get out of the way, like we see in the action movies, you know, I, I can do that. 
I have that strength. I have that ability to dodge and weave. I can make it happen. I can control the situation. So it gives us a sense of control. Whereas you get on a plane, uh, you're completely out of control uh, in that situation. If something happens, if the pilot passes out, the doors are locked, the, the engines fail, there's really nothing that you can do about it. Unless you're extremely um, cautious and prepared, and instead of carry-on, you, you pack a parachute. You know, maybe, maybe that's the way you, you deal with it and find some measure of control. But the point is that we like our control, right? We like to feel that we are in control of our life. We like to plan in order to control as much as we can our future as well. But in this passage, the teacher of Ecclesiastes is bursting that bubble and showing us that you're not in control, that it's not possible to control your life or your future. He shows us that we are victims of time. And he shows us the terror of time. And then he also reveals to us the Lord of time, all for the purpose of teaching us how to anticipate and accept the times that come our way, which are beyond our control, to anticipate and accept the times. So first, let's consider the terror of time. After his poem, that majestic poem in verses 1 through 8 of our passage, this poem that's often read at funerals for both Christians and secular non-Christians, we find his reflection in the rest of the passage on time. And it's important to see the two passages linked together. He's showing us that we do not control our time. Rather, we are slaves of it. Instead of dominating and directing time for our good, according to our plans, both good and bad times, they happen to us. They happen to us. We, we don't make them happen. They happen to us. We're passive. We are not in control. We're like twigs floating in the, midst of the, in the, in the middle of the ocean. There's no, there's no way for us to navigate, really, and direct our course, chart a path. We're at the mercy of time. And if we think about Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is this reflection of life under the sun, what life is like now, here, east of Eden, now that we've been exiled from paradise, exiled to the world as it is now instead of the world as it should be and as it was in the beginning in the Garden of Eden. And it reminds us that this is not the way that it should be. It reminds us that we've messed up God's good creation. We face today a different world than what he designed for humanity in the beginning. For we know that God created us in the beginning and he put us in time. Time was part of his creation. And it was all very good. And he made time and the seasons of life to serve us, to enrich our life, day and night, winter and spring, all of the times and seasons existed before the fall to give a beautiful cadence and rhythm to life with God. In the beginning, in Eden, there were seasons and there were times, but if there was a poem describing life before the fall, 
There would be some similarities with the poem we see here in verses 1 through 8, but there'd be differences as well. Only the good and sweet parts of this poem would describe well the life in Eden. There was in Eden before the fall a time to be born, a time to plant, a time to build, a time to laugh, a time to dance, a time to embrace, a time to love, a time for peace. And the rest of those bad and difficult times didn't exist yet. Time was our friend. Time was our friend back then. But things have changed. Things have changed, have they not? We're no longer friends. We have some bad blood with time. And instead of enriching and beautifying our lives, time haunts us. It terrorizes us. Our old friend is now an enemy that provokes us. We have to go through several seasons of life that scare us and fill us with sadness or grief. Because we ourselves have introduced into God's good creation the chaos of our sin and all that comes with it. We face deadlines in our schoolwork or in our jobs that fill us with anxiety and preoccupation. It scares us. We feel frail and fragile. One day we rejoice at the birth of a baby in our family and the next we're mourning the death of a loved one. There are weddings where we say our vows to each other, promising to love each other, and there are partings, deaths, when death does us part, or divorces. There are beginnings and there are ends. This is reality under the sun. Look with me at verse 11. He says, He has made, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to end. You see, we, as time happens to us, these seasons and times happen to us, we want to know why it's all happening. We want to figure it out. We want to discover the end from the beginning. We want to wrap our minds around it. But we can't. It's beyond us. And yet, as the verse indicates, we know deeply in our heart that we were created for more. We were created for eternity, endless time in the presence of God. But now, we're trapped in the nightmare of life under the sun, where we have to go through these dark and difficult seasons of life, mixed in with the joys of life. And the first practical lesson for us tonight is that we need to learn how to anticipate all of these times and seasons in life, to expect them as regular parts of life, that they will come and go because that is what life is. And you have no control of the times. Now, the author of Ecclesiastes here, the preacher, he's not telling us to abandon all wisdom or all planning that's, else, that's found elsewhere in Scripture, like in Proverbs, which focuses on the need to plan and try and use God's wisdom to, to navigate life wisely. He's not saying that we should abandon that and just go with the flow entirely. But rather, that as much planning and wisdom that you put into your life, there's no point where you will have complete control or guarantee that what you plan is going to happen. You can't keep 
bad things from happening with all the wise planning that you make. Again, you're like a twig floating in the sea of times. You can't fully navigate your way out of it. So anticipate the good times, yes, and anticipate the bad times. They will come as well. And don't fool yourself as, sadly, you know, we see this, I've seen it. Sadly, a lot of Christians fool themselves thinking that God is promising to give them only good times in life. That God wants to prosper them and only fill their life with uh, wonderful times. And they kind of have rose-colored glasses with life. But it's not true. As this poem is indicating to us here, all of these things happen to all of us, believers and unbelievers. This is what we all go through in life. Nobody gets off scotch-free. And so God is calling us, he's, he, he, he's calling us to accept this. He's not promising to get us out of it here and now as we walk through life under the sun. He's calling us to anticipate it and to accept it. But how do we accept it? How do we accept it? Well, some of you may know this, some of you maybe not, but I... I love surfing. I love going to the beach. My family, we, we, uh, I grew up uh, with my family taking me to the beach often. We'd go camping and just spend uh, hours out there. And so I'm very comfortable in the water, in the ocean. I know a lot of people are afraid of the water and the waves, etc. And there's something that you notice if you're comfortable with the ocean and comfortable with the waves. Uh, you see newbies out there, the, the people that are new, that don't have much experience in the water, um, and they're out there trying to swim, and, and the waves are big and strong, and these people who don't have experience, when a wave crashes over them, what do they do? Well, they try to resist the power of the wave. They want to kind of control the wave, and they fight as much as they can to reach the top of the surface, surface as the wave is crashing over them. And this is actually a really bad thing to do. If you're experienced in the water, you know. Because what's wrong with this approach is that as you're striving to reach the top of the, the water, the surface of the water, to breathe, which is natural, right? Um, and you're striving and resisting the power of the wave, what happens? You go into a panic, your heart races faster, your oxygen level starts to drop, and so you're putting yourself into more danger. And you're losing it, and it's a dangerous situation. It's foolish and dangerous to resist the power of the waves. Now, the more experienced swimmers in the ocean who've been with the waves a lot of times, uh, they know how to react and how to get over the waves, in a sense. They know that the proper response is to relax kind of curl up in a ball, in a way, and let the power of the wave just take you. Let it roll you and tumble you under the water with calmness. And then calmly, after the wave has passed, returning to the surface to breathe again and wait for the next wave. That's how you do it. That's how you do it. Now, how does that apply to our passage here? How does it relate? Well, the teacher of Ecclesiastes wants us to anticipate and accept the waves of various times and seasons that come crashing over us in life. And we're not experts at this at all. It's a lot harder than uh, being out in the ocean with waves. Uh, 
And we go into panic mode, don't we? When different waves and seasons hit us. We, we resist. We kick and scream. We are not better for it as well. It makes us more vulnerable to attacks, to depression, etc. For example, a friend or a loved one comes um, and it comes time for them to die. And it was unexpected. And we resist it. We deny it. We don't want to accept the reality. We refuse to let the wave of grief come over us. We don't want the power of sadness to, to, to roll us and tumble us. We want to resist. We want to fight it. Or maybe we get so caught up in a, in a hissy fit about something that we refuse to rejoice in something good that's happened. Maybe you plan for a certain scenario, a certain thing that you were hoping for, that didn't happen, so you get sad and something else great happens, but because you're sad about the other thing, ah, you, you refuse to be happy about this other good thing that has come into your life. Or we get so sad when our plans fail that we quit and refuse to go through new doors of opportunity that are opening before our eyes. You see, to resist the waves of the times and the seasons as they come at us is foolish. And we need to learn the wisdom of submitting to the waves of time that come and go and adjust accordingly to them. To anticipate and accept the times because you cannot control them. We need to learn how to grieve when a loved one dies. We need to learn how to really rejoice when something good happens like the birth of a child. We need to learn how to Roll with the waves as they come. So that is how we anticipate and accept the times. And now I want us to consider the Lord of time. The Lord of time. And here's where we have some comfort from the text. Yes, we, we have no control over the times. And it's foolish to resist. But here's the comfort. God, our Father, is the creator and curator of time. He holds the times, all of them, in his hands. Look at verse 14. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Whatever is has already been and what will be has been before. And God will call the past to account. What we see here is that God himself, he does not live in time. He alone stands outside of time and over time. Therefore, the chaos of time is under his control and his sovereignty. He is dominating and directing all of time to fulfill his great plan of redemption for us and for his glory. So we may be like twigs floating in the ocean, tossed to and fro with the times, rolling with them, but God is in control of the ocean. When tragedies occur, we must realize that God is under control, even in the tragedies. That part, in some way, in some mysterious way, they will fit in to his great plan in the end, that will result in the restoration of his good 
creation. All things, all things planned and things unplanned by us, things we hate and things we love, things that grieve us and things that give us joy, all are part of his perfect plan. And he's continually working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose to conform us to the image of Christ. If you're a parent, children, you know that as parents, we try to orchestrate the life for our kids. We try to give them a routine in life. With my boys, we, uh, we try to give them times during the day that give them structure to their life. They wake up in the morning, have breakfast, brush their teeth, and they have to get ready to go to school. We take them to school. At school, the teachers tell, them, tell him it's time for nap time. Uh, and then later we pick them up. Right now I'm picking him up for swim classes, and he's excited about that. Uh, and then later in the evening, uh, we, we have time for dinner and a time to talk together and reflect and pray together and then there's time for sleep as well and we get prepared for that oh uh, well, first we have to brush their teeth right so why do we do this why do we give them structure in their life why do we give them a routine that they can follow it's for their well-being the parent knows that the kid needs structure he needs a routine he needs different times during the day, to go through each day well and to, to grow into maturity, right? Now, how does the kid respond in this? Oh, I don't know. My, my kids, they don't always respond well. They don't always like it, yeah? Uh, Josiah, he doesn't want to eat his broccoli before ice cream. No, ice cream first, and then maybe broccoli later, right? Uh, brushing my teeth now? No, I can hold that off till tomorrow, right? School? No, I don't want to do. I don't want to go to school. I want to play all day, right? The kid, when we push them into the routine, which we know is good for them, he kicks and screams and yells and throws tantrums and cries. He doesn't want to submit to the routine. That's us, right? We're the kids in the scenario. God has his routine for us in life, the times and seasons. He sends them our way. He knows what's best for us. And we're the kids kicking and and screaming. We don't want to accept. We try to resist. We don't like it. We don't want to cry. We don't want to receive the bad news. We don't want to go through certain times. We want to go through the times that we plan for. But God knows best. He is our Father. He loves us. He's in control of time. And He's guiding our steps. Only God knows how all the appointed times will come together beautifully. The threads of sorrow and joy woven together in a beautiful tapestry in order to carry out His perfect plan. We can't figure it out. We can't even, as he reflects at the end of this passage, we can't even figure out with science or philosophy how or what our future will be beyond death itself. The teacher says basically in verse 21 that for all we know, we die and go back to the dust just like the rest of the animals. Only God has the answers to these big questions. And only he knows how all things 
will work together in the end. He is the Lord of time. Now here is, that was the comfort and here is the good news for us to end with tonight. The Lord of time who stands outside of time and over time entered time for us. Galatians 4, 4 through 6. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. God entered into time to redeem us from all of the bad times, to redeem us from this nightmare that we go through with all of the difficulties he entered time itself for us out of love. And maybe we think, ah, oh, it was easy for, for God to enter into time, but it wasn't. It wasn't at all. Going through the times and seasons for Jesus of Nazareth, God in human flesh, was not easy. And one moment in particular shows us how hard it was for him. Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26, 39. And going a little further, he fell on his face in agony and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. He's basically saying, I don't want to accept this time. This is not what I want. My human will does not desire this. This is not something enjoyable that I'm about to enter into. This is a difficult, hard season I do not want to go into, Father. And yet, how does he respond? Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. We see in this, he is fighting. And we see a a beautiful merging of his will with the Father's, him accepting, submitting to the Father's will as the time, the hour of his suffering came upon him. He did that for us out of love. And it's not just an example of how we are to submit our will to the fathers. Yes, it is an example of that, but it's more. It's good news for us. Because Jesus accepted his hour of suffering, because he accepted that for us, now we can accept our hour of judgment with confidence. Because that's also in this passage. There will come a day when God will judge the living and the dead. And he will recount all bad deeds. He will call all past things to account and bring them to the present to judge. But because Jesus prayed, not my will but yours be done, the time of judgment should not haunt us. It should not terrorize us. Time has lost its terror for those in Christ because in him we look forward to that day, knowing that we are already justified. We are already clothed in his righteousness. We've been forgiven. And that when God calls all our past deeds to account, Christ has already paid them in full because he submitted to the Father's will 
for us, for you. That is good news. It's good news. And so we can look forward to that day with joy, anticipate it, and accept it. Because after that day, we will enter into our eternal rest with Christ and experience again Eden restored and renewed, even better, with the list of only good times to come in the presence of God and his new creation, all because of what Jesus has done for us. The Lord entered time for you. But until then, as we wait, we are pilgrims under the sun. Again, he's not promising to to give us an escape from all the bad times as we await his return. We still have to go through them. And so, remember, we need to anticipate and accept the times, trusting in God the Father and in Christ our Redeemer. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this word from Ecclesiastes, which, at least in my case, comes at the perfect time. And I rejoice in that. Lord, I don't know what each of my brothers and sisters are experiencing in their life, but I ask that by your Spirit, you would strengthen them in their faith, in their convictions, and allow them, by the presence of your Spirit, to anticipate and accept the times that are ahead of them. We don't know what's to come. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, or even tonight, for that matter. We entrust ourselves to you, and knowing that you love us, you care for us, and you've made wonderful promises to us, and they are all yes and amen in Jesus. And in his name, we pray with confidence. Amen.